Photograph of the Moon by a Lunatic 1870s William H. Mason Stereograph, Albumen Silver Print Firstly, please forgive the unfortunate term in this work's title. For anyone who may be unaware, it is a less-than-kind and outdated word used to describe someone with mental illness, and derives from an old belief that the moon caused such conditions. And though that term shall not be repeated again, consider the relationship between its origin and the context of this piece. I invite you now to step up to the mounted stereoscope and look through it, so that you may view this work as it was intended to be seen. An early iteration of 3D technology, stereographs created depth and texture previously unknown in photography. They achieved this through nearly identical, side-by-side -side photographs that, when viewed through a stereoscope, merged together into a single image. You have no doubt noticed that this is not actually a photograph of the moon, but rather a photograph of a fantastically carved simulacrum of the moon. This moon's surface consists of a multitude of human faces, staring wide-eyed towards the viewer. Most of their expressions display looks of fear, shock, or some other variety of emotional perturbation. It would seem that, at least in this piece, the proverbial man in the moon wears many, many faces. Consider again that antiquated idea that the moon could hold sway over people, that it could affect them in some deep way, and consider how this stereograph asks you to look at this version of the moon, how it asks you to be affected by it. For all art asks such a question. Does it affect you? How so? Do you feel admiration for the level of detail on display in the photographed object? Impressed by the early foray into three-dimensional imagery? Do you wonder about the allegedly unquiet mind of whoever envisioned this? About the horror present in so many of the moon's faces? And what caused it? Do you feel any of their unease seeping into your own mind? It's a perfectly natural response, for whether you regard a fictional representation of the moon or the real thing, you are looking at a boundary marker of a vast unknown, one that hides the reality of its strangeness behind a veil of familiarity. We see it every night, after all. But just because a thing is familiar does not mean that it is understood. Perhaps those faces depicted in this stereograph represent those who realized this, realized the impossible depths of the void through which the moon drifts, realized their own minuscule place within that same void, realized that understanding or even hoping to understand that vastness is nothing but a foolish dream. Is it any wonder, then? The naked distress in so many of those faces. For in a cruelly ironic turn, the knowledge of how much you will never understand can never be unknown.
We value the feedback of our patrons here at the Godfrey Estate and encourage any interested parties to fill out our patron satisfaction survey. As an added incentive, those who complete the survey will have their names entered in a raffle for a gift certificate to the Godfrey Gift Shop. Full disclosure, the value of these certificates is currently uncertain, given the ongoing barter system that remains in place at the gift shop. But never fear, these gift certificates never expire, so you can hold on to it for whenever the shop reverts back to accepting more standard methods of payment. Anyone interested in filling out the survey can do so at the information desk in the atrium. Alternatively, you may also whisper your comments into a shadowy corner, though this method is not recommended. The shadows on the estate grounds are less open to constructive criticism than our customer service representatives. As always, the Godfrey Estate thanks you for your time. And, if I may say so, I thank you too. For being here, I mean. To be perfectly frank, you have lasted much longer on your self-guided tour than anyone that I've had the privilege of informing about the estate. I don't refer to just any patron as intrepid, you know. So, thank you. And do please fill out the survey. Hold On, 1961, Letitia Hanford, Carved Marble. If you have not already done so, please look up. Suspended from the ceiling, you will find Hanford's larger-than-life-size sculpture. It depicts a feminine human figure set against an abstract and roiling background. Within this background, you may notice details like the crests of crashing waves, swirls of galaxies and scattered individual stars, blocky geometric patterns that play tricks on your depth perception. And amongst all of this, that feminine figure, one hand reaches out ahead of her, palm open, the other hand clutches something to her chest, and the entire sculpture hangs parallel to the floor, as if the figure were flying through all that chaos. At the unveiling of this work, Hanford said inspiration for the piece came from, quote, the most vivid dream I have ever experienced. At least I call it a dream, for I can explain it in no other terms. According to her personal journal entries from around the time of Hold On's creation, Hanford struggled with recurring bouts of insomnia. This persistent wakefulness set in shortly after the death of Annabelle and Hanford's partner, Jasmine Rushbrook a common manifestation of grief, and one that Hanford battled by throwing herself into her work whenever sleep eluded her. When it became clear to Annabelle that Hanford's nighttime hours in her studio were becoming a habit, Annabelle gifted Hanford a locket. This locket contained braided strands of clippings from Rushbrook's, Annabelle's, and Hanford's hair, and a note that read, Something to hold on to in the dark moments. She also delivered it to Hanford with a plea to not work so late while on the estate grounds, if she could help it. But insomnia had sunk its claws into Hanford, and her only comfort was in the act of creation. To return to the so-called dream of which Hanford spoke, what follows is her own description of its events, as written in a journal entry. One moment I was in my studio, 
Tired, but no more so than I had been on other nights at three in the morning. And then, well, I must have drifted off, I suppose. For the next thing I knew, I was physically drifting. Where, I do not know. Nowhere. Everywhere. Even now, I cannot say. But then there was a... a rushing sound? Like a low, persistent wind through a vast cave. And then I was flying through endless, weaving pathways. I remember trying to track the twists and turns of my flight, but they were too numerous and too rapid-fire to comprehend. And when I tried to look behind me, all I saw was a vast nothingness. And in seeing it, I tumbled into it. Around me, all around me, shone the lights of stars and the distant worlds that orbit them. But one by one, these lights blinked out until there was nothing but the void and the echo of that rushing wind in my ears. I hung suspended in that darkness for what felt like eons, until the vision changed again, and instead of void, I found myself in the depths of the vast ocean, down so deep it was nearly as dark as before. It was strange, but while I had never physically known such a crushing weight, it also felt familiar. I'd felt it in my chest when thinking too long on Jasmine. It had driven me from my bed in the dead of night into my studio, trying to escape it. Somehow I knew in that moment that I could surrender to this crushing power and it would erase me as if I had never been. In my sudden upswell of grief, I almost let it. And then I felt a tug around my neck. The locket drifting in the ebb and flow of the currents. I clutched it to my chest and I rejected the terrible call of those depths. I shut my eyes tight and twin lights burst behind my closed lids. Those lights grew and danced and I followed them until, well, I woke up in my bed, completely drenched in sweat. Or I think it was sweat. It tasted of salt, anyway. And I still clutched the locket in my hand, my fingers clenched so tightly around it that I had to pry them open. Annabelle found me then, with the strangest look on her face. I might have called it relief, though I couldn't explain why. Sleep still eludes me, though not as often as before. And at Annabelle's urging, I have not spent a night in my studio since. Thank you for listening to the Godfrey Audio Guide. This episode was written, produced, and performed by Nicole Knudsen, with sound design and editing by James Ferrero. It was produced on unceded Tongva, Chumash, and Keech territory. Enjoying your trip to the estate? Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. And consider telling a friend about us. Or two. Or three. Or everyone you know. To keep up with The Godfrey, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Godfrey Guide. Or visit our website 
thegodfreeaudioguide.com. For Godfrey merchandise, visit our online store, thegodfreeaudioguide.threadless.com. And finally, if you're interested in becoming a sustaining member of the show, make sure to visit our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thegodfreeaudioguide. In addition to our various membership tiers, you'll also find full episode transcripts available as public posts for any who wish to read them. Until next time, friends, see you back at the museum. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.